I'm happy to introduce to you Carla Scott today. Usually, when uh, the Scott family is here, we are introducing Mark as our speaker. Today, Mark has simply been the chauffeur, and uh, he has brought Carla with, with him today, and we are very pleased to uh, have her come and speak to our mom. She is a mother of four children, and uh, one of those children uh, is with her today, Allie. Raise your hand, Allie. She's... Uh, uh, kind of surprised your mom in coming today, but Carla, we are thankful that you are here. Would you welcome her? Thank you, everybody. I'm really happy to be here with you today. It's really a delight and an honor to be asked to come. You know, not all days are created equally, and Mother's Day is um, one of those days, isn't it? Um, And because it's such a special day, you know, I, I really thought long and hard about what to say. I mean, there's a little pressure here. Our oldest granddaughter will be 15 in September. She's kind of going on 50. She's one of those real mature types. But when she was two, about two and a half, we were talking about church. I don't remember exactly what the conversation was, but as she toddled off down the hall, she said, you know, church is a big responsibility. Yes, it is, Emma. (laughs) And I'm feeling like this is a big responsibility for me to be here with you today. So... What do I say? Do I give you words of wisdom from mom? Don't make that face, or it'll freeze in that position. Close that door. Were you born in a barn? If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Look at me when I'm talking to you. Don't you look at me like that. (laughs) Don't put that in your mouth. You don't know where it's been. If you fall out of that tree and break your leg, don't come running to me. And the best, of course, and you know this, always wear clean underwear. You never know when you'll be in an accident. That's exactly right. (laughs) Well, those are the proverbial momisms. We've all heard at least one of them. But then there are the more inspirational or thought-provoking ones. Don't criticize someone unless you've walked a mile in his shoes. Choose your battles carefully. Pick the right thing to take a bullet for. You need to give people the benefit of the doubt. That was one of my moms. She said it a lot. Make sure your words are sweet. You'll never know when you have to eat them. Pretty is as pretty does. This too shall pass. One of the things that I've said to my kids recently, uh, well, probably what, the last 10 years, what's behind your eyes determines what you see more than what's in front of your eyes. It's all about perception, and we all have stuff behind our eyes. You'll never forgive as much as you have been forgiven. But probably my favorite And if any of you ladies have ever heard me speak before, you've probably heard me say this. It's from my muse, Irma Bombeck. She said, when you're 20, you worry about what people think of you. When you're 40, you don't care what people think of you. And when you're 60, you realize they were never thinking about you in the first place. (laughs) So don't take yourselves too seriously. Well, I decided not to go there, although I think I just did. (laughs) Or I thought, well, maybe I should speak from personal example. I had a wonderful mother. She came home, as I understand the story, one day, and she told my dad, Herman, we need to get Carla Jean in church. I was two years old. I know nothing different than being raised in a Christian home. (laughs) I'm sorry, I wasn't going to do this. I slapped myself. Uh, I'm so grateful for her. But, you know, she was the mother. She was the kind of mother. She was in an era when you, you... didn't express yourselves very much. I'm sure a lot of you had mothers like that. You know, she didn't praise me much. She didn't want to give me the big head, you know. And uh, 
So she didn't uh, tell me she loved me very much, though I, I know she loved me by the sacrifices that she made for me all the time. <clears throat> it, it took my becoming an adult to see it, you know. But in her later years, she did try to express it more. I remember one time I uh, was going to speak at a ladies' brunch up in Kansas City, and my mom lived at Lamar. So I thought, you know what, this will be a lot of fun. I'll just pick mom up. We'll meet at the Blue Top restaurant. I'll take her up uh, to Kansas City with me. And, and um, so we did that, and I spoke at the brunch. And then we spent the rest of the day. We shopped. We kind of putzed around, had dinner. It was a great day. We had a lot of fun. And on the way home, thankfully, we were almost to Lamar. She said something that I'll never forget. Now, keep in mind, this was a mom who was accustomed to not giving compliments. Yet, she was trying to compliment me. So as we neared Lamar, she turned to me and said, You know, honey, I really like those stories you tell. They kind of break up the monotony. (laughs) Not even kidding. That's what she said. (laughs) It's kind of a wonder I was able to hold myself together. But I said, thanks, Mom. She really didn't mean well. And as soon as she got out of the car, I laughed all the way back to Joplin. Couldn't wait to get home and tell Mark. It's one of my favorite stories about her ever, I think. But as an addendum, in her final years, I did get to hear all the things I missed when I was younger. She had dementia. And after living with us for about three years, she was in Spring River, the nursing home there, for about three years. And just about every time I walked in that door, her face would light up, and she'd say, Oh, there's my girl. Oh, honey, you have the prettiest teeth. Teeth? Well, yeah. (laughs) Some days it was blouse. Some days it was hair. It was was a compliment, a sweet compliment. And I'd say, "I, I love you, Mom. And she'd say, Oh, I love you more. It was a real gift. It was a real gift. Well, I don't want to be monotonous this morning. (laughs) I have prayed about that. There can be a lot of emotion wrapped up in this day, you know, and that runs the gamut, doesn't it? From great joy to great pain, I realize that. And, And let's be honest, there can be some disappointment on days like today. But the one thing that never disappoints is what I want to share with you this morning, and that is this, that Jesus' care for mothers in the gospel stories shaped them into his masterpieces. And he can do the same for you, whether you're a mom or not. And my springboard text this morning is the New Living Translation of Ephesians 2.10. And it says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now, you know this man I've been married to for 42 and a half years, about. And you also know, since he's spoken here many times before, that if he were standing in my place, he would give you the original Greek word uh, translated masterpiece, wouldn't he? (laughs) It's poema, P-O-E-M-A, poema. It's where we get our English word poem, obviously. To me, that just conjures up lovely images of what we have been created and then recreated to be. And that is a work of art in the hands of the master. Jesus did that for a lot of women as recorded in the Gospels. But I want to tell you about just three this morning, three moms in the Gospels. And our first sweet mother's story is found in Matthew 15, 21 through 28. When I picture this precious lady, in my mind's eye, I see a woman who looks like anything but a masterpiece. Let's read her story. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. 
A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Well, allow me to set the stage just a bit. Jesus has just heard about the recent beheading of his cousin, John the Baptist. What do you think that news did to him? Well, at the very least, I think it was a foreshadowing of his own future. It must have touched him in a very deep place. So since the the beginning of the previous chapter, Jesus has been trying to get away with his disciples for a little R&R. But as they traveled, he was interrupted several times to teach, feed a multitude, calm a storm, (laughs) teach again. They finally make it to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this was way north of his usual stomping grounds, definitely not Jewish territory, to withdraw, the text tells us. Certainly, this sounds like Jesus just wanted to get away from people, doesn't it? But that was not to be, at least for a while yet. For our precious little lady quickly approaches them, and you can sense her urgency, I think, as she greets him. If it even is a greeting, she cuts right to the chase here. You know, having a child with challenges will do that to a mother. And it's not your usual always having an ear infection kind of challenges. Her little daughter, the parallel text in Mark tells us, her little daughter is possessed by a demon, suffering terribly, the text tells us. We can't even begin to imagine in our day and time how horrendous that might have been. But we can imagine how it took its toll on this mother, She had to have been physically exhausted, emotionally spent, depleted of every resource she had except one. And that was her desire to get help for her little girl. She was in pretty bad shape when she found Jesus. We don't know much about her. We do know that she was from Syrophoenicia. She was a Canaanite. For Matthew, to distinguish this for his mostly Jewish readers, was more than a term of nationality. It was a term of derision. That's important to remember as this story unfolds. And and she also had to have known at least something about Jesus, who he was, the power he had. Perhaps she'd heard his teaching, if not firsthand, from eyewitness testimony, perhaps. This encounter just doesn't make sense otherwise. But besides that, we can only speculate. How long had her little girl suffered with this? Maybe not long, but any length of time seemed so long when you're dealing with suffering of this magnitude? Does she have help, a husband? Does he stay home with a child? Or or did he desert the family when the going got tough? We do know she comes alone to search for Jesus. Well, who takes care of the daily chores? Does she even have time to care for the basic needs of her family, let alone her own appearance or well-being? (laughs) Her life would seem to be anything but a masterpiece. But even though she is in bad shape, She knows enough to come to Jesus. So, how does Jesus care for her? 
Well, at first reading, especially to us women, it doesn't seem like he's very approachable or obliging, does it? I mean, it would appear that he doesn't look at her, he doesn't even answer her at first, and then when he finally does speak, his comments are seemingly indirect. And does Jesus rudely call her a dog? That was a common term for those who weren't Jewish. Remember what we said about her earlier. It's really a little challenging, I think, to understand this interchange on the part of Jesus. But she, on the other hand, oh my goodness, she is going for broke. <laughs> Listen to the descriptive language that we read. Falls at the feet of Jesus, crying out, begging, kneeling before him. That is the typical posture and plea of the beggar. She is a remarkable woman, in despair and in bad shape. But she humbly persists, because that's what moms do. What does our Lord do? Well, he knows this mother, you know. He loves this mother greatly. He also knows best how to help her and what she needs the most. So, I'm going to do a little word work here. To me, it makes all the difference. I think Jesus' reply here is not right to take the children's bread and give it to their dogs. I think that's the crux on which this story turns. There are two words for dog in the original language. One is the term for mongrel, which means a wild scavenger, you know, a wild dog. But the other, and it's the one that Jesus uses here, is in the diminutive form. It means a little doggy, a puppy, a pet. It has the sense of E-T-T-E, et, in our language. So it was not a put-down or an insult. A pet was a part of the family, an insider, not an outsider. He is not insulting her. He is offering her a glimmer of hope, and she picks up on it. She responds in kind. And to our ears, it would sound something like this. Yes, Lord, but even the dog-ets eat the crumb-ets that fall from their master's table. This mother is an amazing woman. She is hanging on his every word, apparently. She's picking up on every nuance, and she has enough of her wits about her to, to banter, as it were, with the Lord. So in my mind's eye, I finally see him turning to look at her with the biggest grin on his face for joy at her response. Now, I can't prove this, but you can't prove he didn't. I picture him taking her sweet face in his hands. And she sees all of the admiration and affirmation in his eyes. You know, he doesn't see a mother who is in bad shape. He sees a woman of faith. And he gives her one of the greatest commendations he ever gave in his earthly ministry. In the text it says woman, but in the Greek it's, Oh, woman, oh, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. So not only did she receive what she came for, healing for her little girl, but she received the shaping affirmation of our Lord for her faith. His care for her made a true masterpiece of her. This next mother touches my heart in um, ways I can't even really begin to imagine. You know, it's every mother's deepest fear, her worst dread, we read her story in Luke 7 through 11 through um, 15. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, 
the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Well, while the Syrophoenician woman was very intentional in seeking out the Lord, the widow of Nain most likely didn't even notice Jesus was coming her way. Or if she did, she may have thought something like, Can I not even accompany my only child to his final resting place without difficulty? For in this story, we see that Jesus' entourage, a large one here, came face to face with the funeral procession for this woman's son at the town gates. But just like the mother from Syrophoenicia, this mother, at this point in time, was certainly no masterpiece. Of all the tragedies that could befall a mother, especially in this ancient culture, this was undoubtedly the worst. To be a widow was hard enough. Sarah Henrik says that the reality of widows in the ancient world is life-threatening at worst, miserable most of the time. But she'd had her boy. Oh, how she must have poured her life into him, doting on him, doing everything she could for his well-being. And he, in turn, took care of her. And now he's gone, too. She had to have been devastated. She lives in a small town. It's interesting to me that the word Nain connotes beauty, but there was nothing beautiful about her life. She's powerful, now at a loss without her only advocate. She has no way of earning her keep. Women in that culture could not own property. She's totally destitute, no source of livelihood. Food, care, clothes, a home even, is gone. His death meant her abject poverty and quite possibly premature death as well. This truly places all the Old Testament passages about the care of widows in perspective, doesn't it, when you realize how destitute they really were. So for God's people, by God's command, were the only hope that widows had. Well, I'm imagining, but I'm just thinking, with all of that possibly rolling through her mind, not to even mention grieving for her only son, it's little wonder she didn't see Jesus, but he saw her. And her whole sorrowful, miserable world was about to change because he saw her. Since with one look, he knew her story. He is moved with compassion, and he speaks tenderly to her. Don't cry. Oh, please, don't cry. I'm going to help you. That's what's implied there. Miss Henrik points out that this is the first time in verse 13 in this chapter that Luke, in his gospel, has used the term Lord for Jesus. And she makes the comment that he is at his most lordly when he shows mercy. I liked that. So he stops the funeral procession by touching the buyer. Well, that'll do it every time (laughs) because a good Jew just wouldn't have done that. He would be unclean having touched death, you see. He then speaks to the young man. Now, the scriptures don't tell us how Jesus did that, but I don't really think he made this huge pronouncement in his big room voice. You know what I'm saying? He's already close to the buyer. So I think that he just leans into this lifeless form. And he whispers in his ear, Young man, I say to you, get up. And he does. And not only that, he begins to speak. Can you just picture that with your mind's eye? The shock and awe must have been amazing. 
And then what started out quietly among just a few began to have a ripple effect. Remember, there were a lot of people there that day. Those who were grieving, those who accompanied Jesus, this miracle was not done in a corner. Well, what do you suppose the young man said? Boy, I would have liked to have been there. (laughs) Knowing boys, we have two. It quite possibly could have been something along the lines of, I'm so hungry. Does anybody have a nice, lean mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich out there that I could have? Well, again, we just don't know. So I'm going to use my sanctified imagination. But I'd like to think he maybe just said, Mom, oh, Mom. Then the scriptures say very simply, And Jesus gave him back to his mother. The tenderness of Christ just blows me away. While receiving back her son would have been joy unspeakable alone, she also got back her future, her livelihood, her provision, her home. The compassion of Christ profoundly changed her circumstances and and thus her. His care for her made a true masterpiece of her. Well, it's probably no surprise the final mother that I want to feature this morning. Of all the women that we have record of Jesus encountering in the Gospels, the first woman that Jesus loved is the one who fascinates me the most. Mary was, you know, the first woman he loved. She brought him into the world, and hers was the first face he saw. How old was she? 16, 17 maybe? She must have been something, this young mother. For the God of the universe to entrust his only son to her says so much about her character and her obedience and her devotion to her God. While we've looked at single encounters of Christ with these other women, we do have more biblical record of Mary. The birth narratives, events during the first two years of Jesus' life, this, the occasion when Jesus was 12 in the temple, um, a couple of encounters during his ministry years, and finally, at the foot of the cross, Some of the sweetest scriptures to me are in these stories. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. Well, this encounter piques my interest more than others, honestly. And we find it in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. 
he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Well, Jesus is in Galilee, and while there, he's been invited, along with his disciples, to a wedding in Cana. Now, it's assumed that this wedding was of a relative's or a very close friend's, and most likely Mary, who was hardwired to serve, was the hostess, for she was the first to know about the lack of wine, and she orders the servants to follow her son's directions. Now, in that time and in that culture, wedding celebrations would last for up to a week. The whole town was invited. Can you imagine the impact that that would make on your budget? (laughs) Much like weddings today. So the family would have to plan very carefully to accommodate such a large number of guests for so many days. So to run out of wine was a serious affront. It was more than embarrassing. It broke the unwritten hospitality codes of that day and culture. So Mary's concern was justified. It was most likely her responsibility to see that the situation was remedied somehow. She did not want the family that she loved to suffer humiliation. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. At least I think it does. All that she says to Jesus is, they have no more wine. If you're a mother, you know, don't you, that she didn't just make a statement of fact, did she? I'm reading this with my mom eyes, and I'm detecting a certain inflection and a certain look on her face. Most likely, she gave him the mom eye. You know what I'm talking about? Sort of like... They have no more wine. It's kind of like, what are you going to do about it? It's assumed, it's presumed that Joseph has passed by this point, so as the firstborn, it would fall to Jesus to do something. Well, now, I'm not for certain what Mary understood. She knew that he was the Son of God. He had just come from his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. Perhaps he had shared with her about the falling of the Holy Spirit upon him and his subsequent temptations by Satan to work miracles that he was fully capable of doing but refused. However, I don't know if she expected him to do what he did in that moment. Though she had to have believed he could do anything, even the miraculous, but what he chose to do, well, it was pivotal. So after Mary gives Jesus the look, as I picture it, notice how he responds. He says, dear woman, this is a real uh, intimate term, it really is. He says, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. He lovingly, respectfully tells her that it was not his time to be glorified as the Son of God, as manifested through a miraculous work. But, as moms can be prone to do, she persists, informing the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them. And he obeys his mother. You know the rest of the story, what we've been taught about this often. He creates wine from water, and not just any old wine, the very best wine. The master of the banquet is greatly impressed. Mary's action saves face for the family and the whole community, and it's most likely dubbed the wedding of the year in Cana. But that's not what I'm noticing about this story. I'm noticing verse 11. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, I can only surmise why it seems that Jesus changed his mind. He is the Lord. He can do whatever he pleases. Did it please him to honor his mother? 
to the extent that it inaugurated him into his public ministry, because that's what it did. If that is truly so, then can you only imagine how that touched a mother's heart, his mother's heart? I would like to think so. You know, Jesus knew his mother like no one else knew her. He knew the reputation she sacrificed to carry the Son of God. He knew the anxiety of separation from her family, the escaping in the middle of the night to Egypt to save their lives, the endurance of reproach and scorn she bore. She assumed the role of a servant in the shadows, all for him. And she did it willingly. Remember the scripture? Be it done to me according to your will, she'd said. Now, I can't prove this, but I truly wonder if, in that moment, all of that came rushing down upon his heart, and it became his greatest joy to honor her in that way, to affirm all that she had done for him, to bring him to this moment. His act of submission to her, if you will, reshaped her heart. His care for her made a true masterpiece of her. So to all you moms in the crowd, happy Mother's Day. Of all of the experiences, of all the life experiences that I've had, being a mom to four wonderful children has been the very best thing that I've been blessed to get to do. In fact, the youngest is here this morning. Allison, you go to the top of the list. You are my favorite child (laughs) in your age bracket. (laughs) She's heard that before. (laughs) But I haven't been a stellar mother. I've failed a lot, miserably. Can you say menopause? I've needed a lot of grace, and I still do. I need Jesus to shape me and mold me into the masterpiece he wants me to be. I need this reminder today. That's why it means so much for me to share it with all of you. Motherhood is one of the most rewarding, painful, blessed, tiring, joyful, thankless, (laughs) fulfilling roles that you'll ever have. Perhaps you feel as I do, or maybe you feel like no one notices all that you do and you're invisible much of the time. Hear me, you're not. The Lord sees it all. Not only does he affirm what you do, he affirms who you are, his masterpiece. So allow his loving care, as we've seen this morning for the Syrophoenician woman, the widow of Nain, and his own mother Mary, to tenderly remind you of his care for you as well, and let that care form you into his masterpiece. And that's the good word for us all, men, women, mothers, fathers, children, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Open your hearts and let him do his work in you. Will you pray with me? Oh, dear Jesus, we cannot thank you enough. We have not the words to say thank you for all you have done for us, that you love us so much that you're willing to do whatever it takes in whatever ways to shape and mold us into the masterpiece you want us to be. Help us, O Lord, this morning to be pliable clay in your hands. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.